Hey, welcome to episode two of the Medill Reports podcast. Hey, Amanda. Hey. I'm Callan Lyons. And I'm Amanda Kane. Here are some of the stories our reporters have found around Chicago this week. This week, we hear about what an increase in the Federal Reserve interest rate could mean for you, what the chances are the Northwestern Wildcats football team will make it to a bowl game, how organizers are teaming up with the homeless to protest in Uptown. And you're going to tell us about a new way doctors can check in on their patients. In the past, your options when you were sick were either getting yourself to the doctor or waiting it out until you got sicker, or not. Now, there's an app for that. Reporter Amanda Kane has more. A lot of us dread going to the doctor, not only because no one wants to be sick, but seeing a doctor today means navigating long waiting lists, expensive copays, and fitting the visit into a busy schedule. Plus, there's tons of misinformation on the internet that can take you from wondering about a scratch in your throat to being convinced you have walking pneumonia, all in a Google search. But now, there are thousands of apps that let you video conference with doctors, as well as chat messaging and sending pictures that let you get diagnosed and drug prescriptions without leaving your home. Um, so I had some dry skin on my face, and instead of actually going into my doctor's to have them look at it, I ended up just taking pictures of it and submitting it to my doctor through um, an app that they have. And after kind of submitting the pictures and describing briefly what was wrong, um, they sent me a message back um, asking me a follow-up question. I responded, and then they actually sent a prescription to my local pharmacy so I could go pick up some um, prescription for it. That's Rachel Johansson. Full disclosure, Rachel is also a friend of mine. While she totally could have just gone to the doctor, Rachel's an active 26-year-old living in the Bay Area, the app is a lot more convenient. Yeah, it's really convenient. Um, I really appreciated it because I was working in San Francisco at the time and my doctor is actually in the East Bay, so instead of having to go back for an appointment, um, I could just do it all remotely. And it, it was probably just as fast, if not faster, as actually going in for an appointment. And it's no coincidence Rachel lives in the Bay Area. Many of the apps are developed there and in Silicon Valley. A few weeks ago, I visited some app developers at a company called HealthTap in Palo Alto. The app has a video chatting interface system along with a WebMD-like search engine for health information. From Jeff Rutledge, HealthTap's chief medical officer's perspective, these apps can be particularly useful for older people with chronic conditions. You know, for example, in the case of managing older people with heart failure, that if you can get ahead of the worsening of the heart failure through modifications of the regimens that people follow at home, that you can prevent acute worsenings and hospitalizations and death that occurs in simple monitoring. And the technology that we have now allows us to have ongoing continuous monitoring of people in their homes rather than requiring them to travel to the hospital for the next point of care. And apps aren't only useful for healthy young people and older people with chronic conditions. Steven Schuler, a clinical psychologist who researches these apps at Northwestern University, says mental health is another area where health tech could fill an access gap. Um, you know, Illinois, with the budget crisis, we've seen tons of mental health services just shut down. Um, there's long waiting lists. As, you know, time goes by, your mental health problems start to exacerbate your, you know, your social functioning, your occupational functioning. You know, if you're on a waiting list for four months with depression and you lose your job, you might not then be able to go into services uh, when they become available. But yeah, there's just not enough resources to go around. It's really sad. And some may be worried about hackers and privacy breaches when trusting apps with medical information. 
But Schuler says typically doctors are more concerned with privacy than patients. The one reason why the healthcare side is more interested in thinking about this is that you know if there is a privacy break and they get you know a fine associated with that, it's a big you know it's a big cost to the healthcare system. It's also a big hit in terms of their public facing. Um, you know, self. So I think that, you know, companies are a lot more afraid of this. Healthcare providers are more afraid of this than patients are. You know, some patients do. Patients are much more concerned on whether or not these things are going to work for them. It also just takes society a while to adjust to all new things. The head of product at HealthTap, Sean Mira, says, I think with every new technology, it's a new paradigm. It's a new way of accessing doctors. And then it takes a little bit of time, but also it takes some thought leaders and industry leaders to really invest in breaking that mold. And today, a lot of people do go through search engines and other channels they're used to. Going to Dr. Google and being lost in a sea of misinformation all of a sudden becomes, I want to find health tap in the results. However, some still worry whether the tech industry is the right place for the future of telehealth. This is Schuler again. Tech companies don't always understand healthcare. Um, they don't always understand what it is that they're trying to change or what they're trying to accomplish um, in terms of the, the healthcare outcomes. And so I definitely think that a lot of times people have a you know a cool idea, you know something that like takes advantage of new technology, and they don't really know what it's you know what its use is. And I think that as, until there's truly a synergy between tech and healthcare that there's going to continue to be this, um, this tension. Preventing people from coming up with self-diagnoses and making it possible for them to go straight to a doctor without leaving their home is one solution telehealth can help solve. But the goals of the many, many apps doing all kinds of health tech from monitoring weight loss to taking pictures of a skin concern are not always clear. Here is Schuler. I think sometimes I see tech companies come to us with a, um, a solution looking for a problem. And sometimes that does find a problem, but you know, the way that I think that um, we should often work is that we should start with the problem and then we should try to create the solution to address that specific problem. For Rachel, her problem was as simple as not having time to go to the doctor when she had what seemed like a relatively minor concern. Now. She is quick to address a possible health issue because seeing a doctor doesn't involve traveling to an office or waiting for an appointment. From Medill, I'm Amanda Kane. Next up, Medill's Shane Monahan sat down with Medill sports reporter Jordan Ray to talk about why Chicago should be excited about Northwestern University football this year. After two losing seasons, the Northwestern football team is 7-2. They are ranked and they have had some big wins over Stanford, Duke, and Penn State. What has been different about this team, Jordan? I mean, I think two things have been different. Number one, they've had a lot more big plays this season. Um, you saw in the Nebraska game that they kind of thrived off of big plays even when they weren't controlling the clock, which is important. They've, honestly, the second thing is they've gotten pretty lucky. Uh, the advanced stats say that this team isn't as good as their 7-2 and two record indicates. They're closer to a 5-win team than a 7-win team. Um, but, hey, they'll take it. Northwestern becomes bowl eligible with its sixth win of the season. What should fans be looking out for for the remaining regular season games? Well, I think the biggest game on the schedule left is Wisconsin on November 21st. Uh, they've also got Purdue and Illinois, which is at Soldier Field. Um, but I think they're going to win those two games. I think the game that you kind of look at is Wisconsin, and that game will pretty much tell us, is this a 9-3 team, is this a 10-2 team, is this a 
maybe it can be the first team that you know wins 11 games at Northwestern. So the last bowl game that this team made was the 2012 Gator Bowl. Uh, what are we looking at for bowl possibilities for this team? I mean, if they, like I said, if they win that Wisconsin game, kind of anything's the a possibility. I think more likely it's probably the Citrus Bowl, Outback Bowl, or Pinstripe Bowl. Um, but it really comes down to that Wisconsin game. Even though this team's been doing well, attendance has been pretty dismal. Uh, what do you think uh, Northwestern has to do to rally Chicago around this team? Well, they really have to find a way to make Northwestern football an attraction. Um, you see at schools, smaller schools, and especially in Texas, schools like TCU and Baylor, um, they've won big and they've won consistently for a long time. And kind of those cities rally around that. And Northwestern needs to find a way to truly become Chicago's Big Ten team. Um, and they do that by winning consistently and winning a lot. So in some related news, there's a groundbreaking for a new lakefront sports facility at Northwestern that's supposed to take place on Friday. Uh, the plan is for the facility to include an indoor field for football practices uh, and training sessions. What does that mean for the football program and the recruiting process? Well, I heard a reporter say that um, Northwestern was almost trying to, in recruiting, in terms of recruiting, they were trying to go to war with a BB gun. And now they kind of have a bigger weapon they can use. Northwestern is in the Big Ten Conference. It's one of the 65 autonomy schools. There's a price for staying in that level of competition. And it's something that we embrace. You see a school like Stanford that has a beautiful facility. And they really use that to market. And I think that um, if they want to become a major program, you look back to the game, the two blowout losses against Michigan and Iowa. Uh, there were two weeks that we didn't play very well, really about three and a half quarters. We didn't play very well in the first uh, half against Michigan and put ourselves in a deep hole that we couldn't get out of. And then, you know, really the third quarter and, and maybe the first couple of minutes of the fourth quarter did not play very well against Iowa. Outside of that, you know, we've given ourselves a chance to win in every game. They have to win those games and, you know, be 8-0, 9-0 um, if they really want to become a star attraction in Chicago. Thanks, Jordan. For those interested in continuing coverage of Northwestern football, make sure to check out Jordan's work on Medill Reports. Around 50 people marched through the Uptown neighborhood Monday night to send a message to Alderman Kappelman of the 46th Ward to stop criminalizing the homeless. Urban Affairs reporter Kellen Lyons details the Northern neighborhood controversy. Chicago police have been ticketing homeless people for sleeping in a viaduct near Wilson Avenue in Uptown, and community members are pretty upset. Homeless people are people too. They are our fellow human beings. That's Carl Melakut, a Chicago resident who used to be homeless himself. Activists, citizens, and homeless community members walked side by side Monday night to Alderman Kappelman's home in the 46th Ward to voice their frustration at the city's lack of support of their homeless people. Andy Thayer, the founder of the Gay Liberation Network, said that instead of ticketing those sleeping outside, community leaders need to first focus on getting the homeless to warmer places to sleep. We need housing so that people can get in out of the cold where they're at risk of dying. We need them out of the cold and then you can start dealing with the kind of issues that many homeless people have. Dennis Frederick is a member of the City Vineyard Christian Church. He said that the city should convert old buildings into homes for people who don't have anywhere to live. I see vacant buildings that have been vacant for, that can hold a lot of people, been vacant for two years, eyesores, and there's nothing being done about it. Ryan Pelker, a concerned resident, said he's frustrated the homeless people are being labeled as criminals 
just because they don't have a home to sleep in. It makes no sense that uh, we close down unit after unit of low-cost SRO housing, and then we punish the very people who are affected by that by writing them tickets, by telling them to, to move, waking them up in the middle of the night with flashlights in their faces. Pelker used to be homeless. And I vowed to myself that I would never forget what that is like. The marchers couldn't find Alderman Kappelman at his home, so they walked to his office where they crammed and confronted him with a demand phrased as a question. Do you take a pay cut to help the homeless people of this community? Alderman Kappelman sidestepped, saying, I money. give a substantial amount of my, of my salary to a lot of different charities, including uh, programs that help uh, women who've experienced domestic violence. Pelker said he thinks demonstrations like Monday night might help city leaders to see the homeless as people rather than community problems or worse, criminals. The, the city uh, and the political establishment in Chicago to finally do something about people who are dying on our streets. From Adil, I'm Callan Lyons. Special thanks to reporter Ryan Connolly Holmes for reporting that story. Next, let's talk about the economy. Uh, do we have to? Okay, yeah, it's usually not the most interesting topic. After waiting two years for the economy to strengthen, U.S. Federal Reserve will likely raise the federal funds rate in December. Reporter Ariane Nettles is here to explain why the Fed interest rate matters to you. The business world is buzzing about the Federal Reserve raising interest rates, but all this hype isn't really a new thing. Economists and talking heads have been talking about the Fed raising the federal funds rate since 2013. It's likely the Fed will start raising interest rates later this year. This but was the most pathetic Fed Q&A I have ever watched. If the Fed waits longer than currently forecast to start raising rates, will that mean a steeper... So what does this all actually mean for the average American? Let's start from the beginning. Federal Reserve, better known as the Fed, is the nation's central bank. When banks need money, they go to the Fed. It helps control how much money is in the economy and keeps prices stable. One of the ways it does this is by setting the federal fund's interest rate, the rate that banks use to borrow money from each other. And like a domino effect, this rate controls all other interest rates on things like home mortgages, auto loans, and even credit cards. David Nice, an economist at Mesro Financial, says that consumers will feel an increase in the federal fund rate. I think the most important thing is knowing how the Fed funds rate and the prime rate in, interact. Um, the prime rate is um, the percent, basically the lowest percent that you could borrow at commercially. So things like home equity lines of credit and credit cards are normally tied to the prime rate. It's currently at three and a quarter percent. And historically, it's 3% uh, above the Fed funds rate. So when the Fed funds rate rises, um, so will the prime rate. Right now, the federal fund rate is almost at zero. Having low interest rates for too long got us in trouble before. 
In the early and mid-2000s, interest rates were low after the dot-com bubble burst. The purpose was to encourage spending after the economy had tanked, but it allowed people to buy houses they couldn't afford. When the housing bubble eventually burst in 2008, it helped crash the economy. After the Great Recession hit, no one was buying anything anymore and banks weren't handing out loans. The Fed took the interest rate down to almost zero to get the economy going again, and it's kept it there for years, which brings us back to today. These low rates encourage people to spend more. Think low mortgage and auto loan rates, which is a good thing if you're about to make a new purchase. But now, we're seeing signs that the economy is ready for normal interest rate levels again. As the economy improves, the Fed needs to raise rates to slow down spending to avoid another bubble. And that's good news for your savings account. Think more interest. To figure out if it's time for a rate raise, the Fed looks at the overall economy to see if people are working, making money, and spending it. Personal spending rose every month this year. The latest U.S. jobs report in October showed the most job growth in almost a year, higher wages, and a 5% unemployment rate, the lowest since things exploded in 2008. So economists think these recent numbers may be just the encouragement the Fed needs. Nice says that this surge in jobs, along with higher wages, will give the Fed a reason to raise rates in its next meeting in December. I would say this most recent jobs report makes it quite hard for the Fed not to raise rates in December. I think they have a pretty low threshold on job creation. So this most recent jobs report blew that out of the water. And again, what does that mean for you? If you're looking to buy a new car or home, you might do it before the Fed makes its decision on December 16th. For Medill, I'm Ariane Nettles. Last but not least, there is a Republican debate this week. Medill sent a team to Milwaukee to cover it. One of our reporters got a second with the man, the myth, the Donald. Reporter Jane Howe asked Mr. Trump about his opposition to China. Mr. Trump, hey, first call. I'm going to stop. We're going to stop and get something. Here. What do you want? Yeah. Go ahead. You're targeting China as the biggest abuser of no, America. No, I love China. You, I love China. You, but China is smart. excluded from TPP. Thank you. So Thank do you have you. anything right. to say about it? No, I love China. Make sure to check out all of our stories on MedillReports.org and to be on the lookout for our next show. You can check us out on Twitter at Medill Chicago and on Facebook and Instagram at Medill Reports. You can listen to future episodes of the audio show by subscribing to iTunes, Stitcher, or finding us on SoundCloud. Special thanks to reporters Shane Monahan, Ryan Connolly-Holmes, Ariane Nettles, and Jane Howe. Our music today was recorded with Anna and Teal, who play on Fridays at the Jackson Red Line from 9 to noon. John Glenn played the steel drum. He was visiting Chicago from Ohio. Today's show is produced and written by Kellen. And Amanda helped producing as well. For Medill, I'm Amanda Kane. And I'm Kellen Lyons. And, and we, we love, love China. China.